It's Monday, March 11th. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool One, Jason Moser, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Ron Gross. Good to see you guys. Happy hey, Monday. Hey, dude, Chris. Happy, Happy Monday. Monday. Good weekend. Everybody have a good weekend? Did have a good weekend. I nice did. weather. I went to the daddy daughter Girl Scout Aww. Candyland dance. Wow. With both of my girls. Yeah, it was, it was a. It's a can- Wait a minute. It's a Girl Scout Candyland. It was the Girl Scout dance, and the theme was Candyland. Was there a wow. lot of candy? I was going to say, there was the- a lot of candy. There was candy and cookies candy. and all sorts of candy themed kind of things, but it was just one of those things that in a couple of years, it's going to be something they wouldn't even think of doing, so I need to take advantage of no. it now. Not New York once Bloomberg gets a hold of it. I had a race this weekend, that day, and, and the, the Candyland dance uh, sounds a whole lot more fun than No, if you can only have half a brownie. <laughs> um, all right, we're going to talk uh, General Electric, Dick's Sporting Goods. Uh, we're going to dig into Dell Computer and uh, the drama, the ongoing drama at Dell. Uh, and yes, as Ron alluded to, Mayor Bloomberg and uh, the showdown with Starbucks. Uh, but let's start. Oh, you know what? Let, let's let's start by saying thanks to American University. Great quick, time. Just yes. a quick note: if you if you caught the Motley Fool Money Show this uh, past weekend, uh, we taped it live at the Kogod School of Business at American University. Great. Just a great time. Um, had a wonderful time. Great audience. Great, great audience. And kudos to the three students who came up and pitched mm, stocks on their Not radar. easy to do. Not easy to do in mm. front of a live audience, and they did a great job. All right, let's uh, kick things off with General Electric. Um, we talked about Warren Buffett's letter to shareholder, but CEO Jeff Immelt's uh, letter to GE shareholders. Uh, he said that uh, his top priority... I found this interesting, Ron. <laughs> the top priority is increasing the dividend and how they're going to, this year alone, they're going to be paying out $18 billion. I, I should say retur- returning right. $18 billion uh, between dividends and share buybacks. Mm-hmm. I, I know it's a huge company and it generates a ton of money. But $18 billion. It's a lot of money. So not only does it generate a ton of money, but they're selling the remaining stake in NBC uh, right. Universal. So that's another $17 billion, but who's counting? Yeah. Um, so right there, $17 billion, Plus, I think they sold some real estate assets for another billion. So there you got $18 billion that is really available to return through a $10 billion buyback and the rest in dividends. They did increase their dividend by, I think, uh, 12% in December, if memory serves. So I I love it. They've got plenty of capital to run their business. They're saying they're going to continue to make acquisitions, but sub $3 billion versus um, a while back where they were really spending um, a little bit more money on acquisitions. So their capital allocation strategy seems to be in place. They're going to focus solely on industrial and energy now. And, you know, if you're a shareholder, I think that looks good. Um, it does, and one of the things we've talked about in the recent past is Immelt's, uh, st- one of his other stated goals is to essentially reduce the amount of money, or I should, I guess I should say the percentage, um, that GE Capital is generating for General Electric, because that, for a long time, that has been the main economic yeah. engine at GE. Um, what do you make of that plan? Because on the one hand, I, I think it makes sense. Yeah. On the other hand, if I'm I'm not a shareholder, but if I'm a shareholder, I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> we we, we want to take our, our biggest moneymaker and cut it down in size? Well, they just want to be less reliant on it because it can, it can create some volatility. Um, and they've done a good job, actually. It, ha- it is a lower percent of, of the total pie that it used to be. Um, and they want to get back to their bread and butter, which, I mean, GE is an industrial company and, 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 and even energy. They've got a lot of plans around compressed national, natural gas and really taking energy to, to a whole new level. And that's traditionally what they've done well. And they want to stick to their knitting. And, and I applaud that. In terms of big dividend stocks, is this one that you like? Uh, Jason, I'll just turn to you. I, I, 
I know you you tend more towards the retail uh, uh, consumer facing side. GE's not really in that wheelhouse. But w- what do you think when you look at a stock like GE? Well, I mean, I, I like it a lot more than I did probably a month ago. I think we we talked about this initially with the uh, the GE and NBC transaction yeah. selling off NBC Universal, and I think that's a great move. I like uh, you know Tehran's point there is as far as diversifying the revenue streams a little bit further away from from capital and more uh, you know reliant uh, energy infrastructure type plays that they're. That that there really is their bread and butter. And so when I look at GE today, it's a company that probably didn't interest me a whole heck of a lot a couple of years ago. I think today looks a lot more interesting, uh, particularly now with the focus on returning cash to shareholders, especially via dividends. I mean, buybacks are great, but dividends are cash in your pocket. John, uh, John, Ron. You can call me John. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, when you look at the valuation of the stock, does it look cheap to you? Does it look It's going to always look like GE. Really? <laughs> I mean, it, there'll be times like in recession or market or bear markets where maybe you'll, you'll get a chance to get in cheap but it looks you know reasonably priced to me not dirt cheap not real expensive but the 3.2% dividend yield plus the buybacks would make it pretty a safe return of capital type uh, income producing investment um, which would appeal to a lot of people GE's the one remaining original Dow component in it yeah i mean if I you really want to go old school i mean GE is it Fourth quarter results for Dick's Sporting Goods, uh, kind of a mixed bag. Uh, on the positive side, Jason, earnings up 15%, online sales up 54%, uh, but same-store sales were way below what they were targeting. Um, because and, of? Uh, well, I suppose in part because of the online sales. Well, I was going to wait for weather. I mean, that's what they always blame. Oh, yeah, yeah, weather. Right. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. It's either too hot Easter. or it's too cold. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it was interesting to see that. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think first and foremost, you know, we don't look at every sell-off as a genuine buying opportunity, you don't go into those blindly like this. Now, with that said, I think that investors would be wise to look at this sell-off today. Yeah, shares down uh, about 8% this because, morning. Yeah, exactly. This is a very quality company. I mean, certainly I think the stock had gotten a little bit ahead of itself. Uh, but with that said, uh, I think that today's sell-off, certainly the market's concerned about same-store sales and guidance going forward doesn't look all that stellar either. They're talking about basically negative same-store sales to to potentially flat at best for this quarter. Uh it was interesting to see sort of that weather dynamic again. I mean, they talk about the you know the warmer weather where they started kind of reducing their cold weather inventory, and then all all the last second it just got a little bit colder, and they yeah. didn't have the cold weather gear to sell. So uh, it's kind of hit or miss there. But you know, again, I mean, it's Dick Sporting Goods. They do sell a lot of Under Armour and Nike, a lot of Columbia. So they do really well with that store within a store concept. It is a very quality company. And I tell you, when you look at just the metrics over time, they've done a really good job uh, keeping that gross margin growing, uh, bringing those. Those, those savings, that profitability down to the bottom line there. Cash conversion cycle continues to dwindle, which means they're just making their money faster. Uh, the Stack family has has the biggest interest in this company, so you're going to be along for the ride a little bit with them. But uh, still, I, I think that investors would be wise to take a close look at this one over the course of the next couple of weeks. You mentioned Under Armour, and uh, I think it was last month I saw a full-page ad on the back of the Washington Post sports section that Under Armour had opened or was about to open its first store um, in right. the Baltimore area, so you know, right, right where they're headquartered. Um, but did that does that surprise you? I, I sort of look at Under Armour, and and obviously it's had enormous success. But when I saw that, my reaction was, why are you doing that? Like, why would why would you want to? 
pursue a retail strategy when you're an apparel maker? Well, I don't think it's going to be a retail strategy that's built to the same scale as something like a Dick's Sporting Goods. And so they can take advantage of partnerships with something like a Dick's Sporting Goods and, and get more scale and, and more uh, sort of representation around the country. But you look at something like a Nike, and they're doing essentially the same thing in Nike stores and the Internet sales. And so they're focused on that direct-to-consumer model in order to make it just another avenue uh, in which to get those products. And So, so it's a side project. It's I do. Not- I think it's a side project. It's another way that Kevin Plank's really looking to grow this company. The 24th most powerful guy in sports, by the way, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. Sports Illustrated. Under Armour is another one to keep in mind. And a friend of yours is on the list. Yes, Ron? <laughs> Dude, the the Glazer family was number 29. Um, yes. Nice. Ron is, nice uh, people there. Ron's buddies with, uh, with the folks on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. It's a big roller here. High uh, rollers. Um, just last thing on Dick Sporting Goods. Uh, you have talked before about the in-store experience at Dick's, and in particular their, their golf concept. When you see... A number like online sales up 54%. Obviously, that's inherently a good thing, but I'm wondering, at some point, can they be too successful with the online sales? Where I'm going with this is, if part of the competitive advantage for Dick's is, hey, we've got this great in-store experience that you can't really get anywhere else, doesn't the online sales undercut that? It can. There's no question about that. And I think that what I've, you know, one thing I've, I've expressed concern of uh, over here over the past couple of years is that I, I'm a little bit... Uh, I'm just not quite as optimistic about their growth prospects maybe as they are. I think they see somewhere in the neighborhood of 400 additional stores as they spread out that West Coast presence. And I'm, I'm not sure that that's a, a bit too robust. Uh, what it does, though, I think, again, it, it offers another avenue for which, you know, you know by, by which com- consumers can get their goods. They built an app for the iPhone, which is, you know, it's it's a good little app. I mean, you can find uh, products in whatever stores you need. But I think that overall, it, it does somewhat limit the growth footprint for the retail stores. But if they can kind of find that happy medium between the store account and the Internet channel and make those two work, very well together. I mean, this is not going to be an Amazon-style investment, right? They don't have just growth prospects to the moon. Uh, but there is plenty of market share out there, especially with something like the Sports Authority, uh, you know, which is their primary competitor. They're a disaster. And so, yeah, and I, and I think that a lot of people would agree with that. I mean, the in-store experience there is is less than stellar, and that's really what Dix is gunning for is, is that uh, they want to own that market. And so if they can do that, they can live quite happily, and the stock has a little ways to go if they do uh, the drama continues at Dell. Uh, I think the last time we talked about it on Market Foolery, it was that Dell was getting ready to go private. And yeah. I think, what was the buyout price run? It was 1365 like 1365 a share. Well, n- shares are trading for over $14 yeah. now. Um, Carl Icahn, the activist investor who has a 6% stake in Dell, uh, had, came out last week, said he wants... Dell to remain public, to restructure the company. He thinks the stock's worth 22 and the latest twist and turn is that he has signed a confidentiality agreement with Dell to look at the company's books. Yeah. What do you make of all this? There was a rumor a little while back that he was going to make an offer for the company of about $15 a share um, to top the go-private offer. Um, that never came to fruition, but... It's interesting now that he wants to see the bucks because maybe he really is interested in coming in. Um, the 1365 that Michael Dell wants to take this private at is, you know, you always want to take a company private as cheaply as you possibly can. So while it might be in the ballpark of reasonable, it likely is relatively light from a valuation perspective. So if, if Icon can come in and pay 15 or 16 and still be getting a good deal, he, he might want to do that. I personally wouldn't have a desire to do that, right. <laughs> but, but more power to him. Um, he he thinks he can recapitalize his company, pay a large special dividend. He's even offered to um, 
take money out of his own pocket to lend to the company um, to help them pay what he he proposed a nine dollar special dividend. Um, so he really likes it, and he's not letting this go away. He's he wants to see those books. He really likes it, but he hasn't seen the books yet. And <laughs> Carl Icahn, uh, like you know, like others, I I, I don't want to say he's the only one out there, but Carl Icahn is one of those big wealthy investors who kind of can't keep his mouth shut. Yeah. And once he sees the books, aren't so, we going to know very quickly what he thinks of Dell? I don't think so, actually, because an, an investment is Dell is not based on the books, because the books is based, are based on the past. And the future of Dell has nothing to do with the past. The, the business is completely uh, transforming away from the PC business into service and servers. Um, they're trying to, as we said before, kind of do an IBM type transformation. So you get, looking at how the PC business performed over the last year or two doesn't tell you anything about that. So I think you know any good investor needs to do his due diligence. You certainly need to see the books and you need to see everything, but it's a bet on the future. It's a bet on the come. And uh, you know that that I don't know if we'll be able to tell. Well, we'll that when we see his final offer, that will tell us what he thinks about the future. Last question: You're a shareholder, and I know that uh, you would love it if the buyout offer was forty dollars a share. That would be the only way I'd get whole. <laughs> um, what would you like to see happen here? Would you like to see? Would you like this just to be over? I'm talking just you personally, right? Would you rather that this just be done with and you know the the stock gets bought out and you know you you take the tax right Me off personally? You personally, um, I have I have Dell fatigue. Quite frankly, I've owned it for years and years and years at much higher prices. I bought it when the the PC business was robust and yep. and you know iPads weren't even a, a thought. Um, so it's a whole different business to me now. It's not the investment I made. You could say my thesis is broken. It's stayed in my portfolio because I'm frankly too lazy to have done anything about it. Um, so you know what? I'll, I'll take some cash and I'll reallocate it. Today is the last day that people can buy supersized sugary beverages in New York City because on Tuesday, Mayor Bloomberg's ban goes into effect. This is the, the ban that essentially puts a 16-ounce limit on sugary drinks, and we've seen two very different reactions from the major coffee makers, um, Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts. Dunkin' Donuts is complying. They've actually put together a, a an unintentionally hilarious um, uh, guide for customers about what is changing, what's not changing, the fact that now customers have to put their own sugar in large beverages. The, the Dunkin' Donuts employees can't do that on their own. Starbucks has basically said, ah, the hell with this. They said <laughs> we're going to keep serving our 20-ounce venti sugary drinks. Well, there is milk content there. There is saying. milk content. Right. And so, so you know, the hell with this. So you um, know what struck me when I looked at this Dunkin' Donuts chart? The very first time I looked at it, I was trying to think, what in the world? I mean, this is a very complicated-looking sort of flow chart, as Mag put it. But, you know, it was like when my mom and dad, God bless, I love them to death, but man, when they came here for the first time and we had to go to the Metro, and so they go to the Metro machine to get their ticket, and all of a sudden they're standing there at the machine and they're looking at this thing like, okay, how in the hell do I get my ticket? Where am I supposed to go? And how much is it going to cost? So it's about a 10 to 15 minute ordeal just sort of sitting there looking at this machine, trying to figure out <laughs> what to do. And I just have to believe that that's probably going to be the initial reaction with the person that comes and sees this chart for the first time. They're going to look at this chart and be like, 
what do I do? <laughs> and it, it's terrible for, for the service aspect of something like Dunkin' Donuts, where now you're going to have to add your own sugar. So now there's a bottleneck over at the little sugar thing, which yeah. just doubles as a garbage can over at Dunkin' Donuts. You know, they throw the, the straws and the sugar on top of, of the little garbage can. They're going to have to kind of re, repurpose the stores to, to make room for this. I know it's not a political show. I, I do think Bloomberg's overstepping here. Um, it doesn't seem like it's his job to legislate um, sugary beverages in this way. There's so many loopholes. You can still go to 7-Eleven and get your big gulp. You just can't go into right. a Dunkin' Donuts. Um, it, it's just a bit much. Why do you think we're seeing these two very different reactions from Starbucks and Dunkin' Donuts who are basically in the same business? And I'm wondering if it's because... Dunkin' Donuts has franchises and Starbucks doesn't. So it's yeah. easier for someone like Howard Schultz to stand up and just say, no, we're not no, going to do Starbucks does have licensed stores. So there is a difference between like a company operated and yep. a licensed store. And I mean, you know, for example, some of them, you can't use your loyalty card because they don't have that. Right. They're That's not true. That. So, I mean, I think there is a difference there. But I'd be interested to see if, if something from Dunkin' Donuts corporate came down and said, you know, here's, here's our corporate policy here. Well, I'm assuming or, they're the ones who made that. That, that, right, unintentionally hilarious. Right? <laughs> Unintentional hilarious is a great business model, isn't it? Um, so, but I do think the decentralization of Dunkin' versus you know Schultz at the top of Starbucks is probably the main difference here. Yep. Um, it's going to be far hard to fight City Hall in the end. I don't know how Starbucks really, in the end, can win. You, they have to comply if that's the law. Um, but they're going to make make it seem certainly a bit ridiculous <laughs> before they end up doing that. It's going to be fun to see how it plays out because the city has said that the, obviously the ban goes into effect tomorrow. There's going to be a three-month grace period when presumably businesses will be warned but won't be formally charged. But three months from now, if they start handing out fines, it's it's. I think that's when the fireworks are going to come. Is it over the top here to predict that within the next uh, six Six months to a year, we see Michael Bloomberg as a guest trainer on The Biggest Loser. (laughs) That might be over the top. That might be over the top. Um, (laughs) A year from now, though, when Bloomberg is no longer in office, do do you think that whoever is next – because this is is not something that went to the voters. This is not (laughs) something that even went through the city council. This was something that Bloomberg could do through the health department that he controls. Do you think a year from now, a new mayor comes in and says, yeah, we're getting rid of this? If it's a libertarian, you definitely. <laughs> I was going to say, I have a feeling you're going to have someone at least running on that platform. Now, right. whether they win or not is another story. Yeah. Jason Moser, Ron Gross. Guys, thanks for being here. Thanks. thanks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Okay.